0: hi this is david summerstein and you're listening to day by day the nick hillary trial podcast uh, we're covering this trial in canton day by day nick hillary is on trial for the 2011 murder of a 12-year-old boy in Potsdam named Garrett Phillips. And uh, this is a bonus episode, and I was just thinking last night that you might want to listen to the opening statements of the prosecution and the defense in their entirety. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to lay them out there. Uh, There are times when there's some silence. There's some times when uh, they're showing video uh, especially in the prosecution, uh, when uh, William Fitzpatrick is talking. And so there's going to be some sort of gaps in silence. I haven't edited any of this. So you're just going to kind of hear it as is. And if it sounds sort of like gaps and silences to you, just, you know, forward 15 seconds, 30 seconds, or whatever it takes, until you start hearing uh, him talk again. Um, the prosecution statement is given by uh, William Fitzpatrick, Onondaga County District Attorney who is helping St. Lawrence County District Attorney Mary Rain. And the opening statement by the defense is given by prominent civil rights lawyer from New York City, Norman Siegel. So let's get right to them. And thanks very much. And later today, we will have a podcast. uh, regularly scheduled podcast uh, covering uh, day two of witnesses in court. So we'll see you then. And, uh, you know, here's the opening statements. Mr. Fitzpatrick, your opening statement. Thank you very much.
1: It's uh, It's normally at this point, Judge, where either you or some of the litigants would say to, uh, to a jury to uh, keep an open mind. And I don't think, Judge, I've ever beseeched someone more in a criminal case to keep an open mind than I would in this manner right now. It's never been more appropriate. Because the narrative of this case up to this point has been very, very simple. A group of uh, bungling, incompetent cops from a small town in upstate New York uh, on a razor-thin amount of evidence brought a case against a man, perhaps insidiously motivated by the color of his skin. Great TV. Great theater. Problem is, that narrative, Judge, is completely 100% false. In reality, this case, as you're going to learn, is overwhelmingly simple and straightforward, and the proof is beyond compelling. It approaches mathematical certainty. Because what it comes down to, Judge, is this there'll be plenty of evidence pointing to the guilt of this defendant, not all of it individually will point to his guilt, although there are two things that individually, conclusively prove his guilt, but there are a constellation of other facts and circumstances that point to his guilt. But ultimately, it's not about tunnel vision, rush to judgment, the defendant's race, it's about 30 minutes in Potsdam. 4.53 p.m., to 5.23 p.m. on Monday, October the 24th, 2011. At 4.53, we know that Garrett's alive. At 5.06, we have compelling evidence that Garrett is clinically dead. So the question becomes, for this 30 minutes, where was the defendant? If, as he claims, he was in his apartment with his daughter, then judge, you bang that gavel, you acquit him, you let him walk. That's your duty. But if he lied about this 30 minutes, repeatedly, overwhelmingly, and demonstrably, then judge please recognize he's only got one reason to lie. The only reason he has to lie is because he was killing Garrett. There's no third option. He's not lying to cover up some tryst that he was having. He's not lying because he was robbing a bank on Main Street. The only reason he has to lie is because he was choking the life out of this kid. And if he's lying about 453 to 523, then it is just as much your duty, Judge, to convict this defendant. Now let's talk about the evidence in this case, that the people are going to present to you. This is a photo taken shortly before Garrett's death in the fall of 2011. October 24th, 2011 was a Monday. It started out weather-wise okay. Later there were spotty showers throughout the day, particularly in the Potsdam area. It was a school day. And 12 year old Garrett Phillips, in the upper right of that photo, surrounded by his mom on his right and his brother Aaron in the front, he got up that morning, he cleaned himself, he had breakfast, he got dropped off by his stepfather, Casey Collins, at 100 Market Street. He packed his backpack, which you'll see, and he prepared to ride his beloved Ripstick about a quarter of a mile from his home on Market Street to Potsdam Central Middle School. And he had no idea that he had less than 10 hours to live. Garrett lived in a four apartment building complex at 100 Market Street. I want to point out some of the landmarks, Your Honor. In this, I don't know, public square mile is basically every address that's important in this case and I apologize uh, to the council for my, my background chair it's maybe right over here it's okay yes this is a high school Judge. this is Leroy it runs north to the top south to the bottom this is the field where the varsity was playing on October 24th just out of view over here is the middle school and the grammar school where Garrett was. Four-tenths of a mile and it's line, as straight as an arrow, is 118 Leroy Street. It's just up here, Judge. That's a direct shot from the parking lot of the school to 118 Leroy If you were to come in this direction, which would be to the west, you'd be adding about a half a mile to a mile through your roof. 100 Market Street, Judge, is right here. It's a quarter of a mile from that apartment building, past the hospital, right up to the school. There's also some addresses over here on Garden Street. That gives you another view, Judge, with the streets labeled. Some of the streets that will be of importance, as I said, are Leroy, Market, and certainly Grove, Garden, and Cottage. Garrett lived at uh, 100 Market. He lived with his mom, Tandy, and his then seven-year-old brother, Aaron. Garrett's dad passed away when Garrett was two. He died from a brain aneurysm. He was raised by Tandy. Uh, John Jones and Casey Collins were two men who played an important part in his upbringing. The defendant in world, Nick Hillary, was a soccer player, I believe sometime in the 90s at St. Lawrence University. He was very successful there, he was very good. And he eventually returned to the Potsdam area to become head coach of the soccer team at Clarkson University. He frequented a local bar called Tuns, which is in Potsdam, and Tandy bartended there on occasion. And sometime in 2010, as fate would have it, a relationship developed between uh, Tandy and the defendant. Uh, Eventually that relationship became intimate. They were lovers. And in October 2010, in circumstances that Tandy will will describe, Tandy and her two boys and the defendant and his daughter, Shauna Kay eventually moved in together at 118 Leroy Street. That's the place I pointed out a few moments ago, Judge. A straight shot from the school. The apartment is called Meadow East Apartments. You know, the living conditions weren't great. It wasn't really designed for Uh, three children and, and two adults, but nevertheless, they made a go of it, and life went on. And as sometimes happens in life, for whatever reason, Tandy and the defendant began to have difficulties. Their relationship wasn't as ideal as it was when it first started. And without any question, Your Honor, Garrett and Aaron do not favor the defendant. They didn't like his parenting skills or lack thereof. They didn't like his rigidity. They didn't like his rules and so forth and so on to the point where especially Garrett thought it was being unreasonable and not a very pleasant way to live. Now, Judge, I understand lawyering as good as I hope anybody in this courtroom. I'm not here to tell you the defendant was unreasonable disciplinarian or just a person trying to bring structure to these kids' lives that's not what this case is about. What matters is, without question, the proof that Tandy eventually broke off this relationship because of her son Garrett's feelings towards this defendant. In her mind, they came first and their well-being far superseded any feelings that she still may have for Mr. Hillary. There really isn't any question about that and why that's important will become clear to you in a few moments, Judge. Now, this doesn't sit well with the defendant. The proof is going to show he, he obsessed about the breakup. He would speak to Tandy's family members. Uh, he would implore them, you know, please, can you help me? I want to get back together with Tandy. Please see what you can do. See what you can say. It's almost high schoolish, Judge. It's almost like, can you tell Susie? I really like her. I want to take her out to the prom. And the proof will demonstrate overwhelmingly that the defendant knew that the reason for this breakup, a breakup that he did not want to happen, was because of Garrett. So they decide to move. Tandy has a conversation with her two boys, other things happen, and in August 2011, Tandy, Garrett, and Aaron, they move in together at 100 Market Street. As you look at that building, Your Honor, there are four apartment structures. If I start lower left, and that's that's one set of apartments, the the victim lives in the upper left quadrant of that apartment. And you'll hear from the people that live on the upper right quadrant of that apartment building sometime uh, today or tomorrow. Now, Defendant and Tandy still have some type of relationship going on. Maybe I'm too old to understand it, but in, in, in any event, there still is some intimacy between the two of them.
2: <clears throat>
1: and Defendant is not accepting this very well. In fact, on occasion, he shows up at 100 Market Street uninvited. He helped her move in. He's got a key. It gets to a point where Tandy is concerned, to say to him, I'd like the key back. And that takes three days before that request is complied with. I'm not going to offer you any conclusive proof that defendant kept a copy of that key, but the fact that he once possessed the key is not in dispute. And I'll show you in a minute why that's important. So at 5.08 p.m., Judge, back to October the 24th, 2011, Potsdam PD dispatcher receives a call from a young woman by the name of Marissa Vogel. She's a student, as I said, she lives upstairs at 100 Market with her then fiance, now husband, Sean Hall. She explains to the dispatcher that she heard a noise from apartment 4, which would be the victim's apartment. She hoped it was nothing, and she was hesitant to call and get involved, But she was at least concerned enough to bring her concerns to the attention of the police. Basically what caused her concern was some running noise, then a noise, and then a soft voice crying out, help. That was, in all likelihood, Garrett Phillips' last word on earth. She exits her apartment and she knocks on the door. And here you have, Your Honor, a sketch that I believe will come in by stipulation. The green area represents where Marissa and Sean Hall were residing. The stairwell to orient you would be towards Market Street, the front of the building. And the blue area represents where Garrett and Tandy and Aaron lived. She exits her apartment she would walk out judge room number three, and then go across the very narrow hallway in the white area just on top of the stairs. And she knocks on the door. And then she hears footsteps approaching her. And suddenly the deadbolt lock on the door, as best she can determine, is engaged. And then she hears silence. She then goes back into her apartment. She tells Sean Hall what she heard, and they decide to call the police. Mark Wentworth of the Potsdam Police Department is dispatched. Probably gets there in a little under five minutes. This is not a high priority call with sirens blazing and speeding down the streets. It's a very, very short distance from the PD to 100 Market Street. And unfortunately, because of an error in the timekeeping system, it is impossible to say exactly when he got there. Although we believe the proof will show that he got there at about 4, excuse me, about 514, 515, 516, somewhere in that neighborhood. Now meanwhile, Judge, just outside in the back of Market Street, there's a young man by the name of Andrew Carranza and his then girlfriend, Shannon Harris. And they're in the process of changing a flat tire on Carranza's truck. Andrew's now deployed to the United States Marine Corps, but he'll be here to describe what he saw and what he heard. Meanwhile, Wentworth gets there. He goes up the stairs. He thinks he hears footsteps from within the apartment. He knocks on the door, and he announces that it's the police, and he's greeted with silence. Now, he's standing exactly where Marissa Volga was standing. If you walk up those stairs, Judge, immediately in front of you is a door. As it turns out, that door actually isn't utilized at all. Now, Wentworth doesn't know that but he's going to tell you that when he hears noises coming from within the apartment, apartment four, the victim's apartment, that he is oriented to the point where he's hearing noises from his right. Now he has no idea that on the other side of that door, Garrett Phillips is in the last moments of his life. He's still greeted with silence. He goes back and interviews Marissa and Sean. He returns to the hallway, again he thinks he hears movement when he knocks on the door. He hears an unexplained noise which he believes comes from immediately inside the apartment. And as it turns out, there's nothing when the police eventually get in there to account for that noise, suggesting that his orientation is off. So it's impossible to determine whether these noises have anything to do with the killing of Garrett. As Sean Hall is going to testify that while Officer Wentworth is out on the landing, he's actually in his own apartment pacing around, obviously causing footsteps. Andrew and Shannon are no longer in the parking area. Before they left, Andrew had heard a strange noise, and he looks up at what is the rear window to Tandy and Garrett and Aaron's apartment. He doesn't think much of the noise, he certainly doesn't equate it with a homicide being uh, perpetrated. So he's unconcerned and then him and Shannon go through the back parking lot into his apartment to answer a call. Eventually, the landlord for the apartment gets there, his name is Rick Dumas, and he arrives and he's got a key to the apartment. And almost immediately upon entering the apartment, to their horror, They discover that lying just inside of bedroom number one in a prone position is Garrett Phillips. Now, it is uh, not my style to hide bad news. The bad news is that errors are made at that point. Despite obvious indications that this is perhaps a homicide, the police don't treat it as such. Now, Garrett has obvious marks on his body. The physical condition of the apartment suggests a struggle. He has marks on his face, he has marks on his ear, his neck. He has rug burns on his legs. His rip stick, phone, and backpack are all in the apartment. Now that would suggest, Judge, that he had time to get back into the apartment and place his ripstick in its proper place, take off his backpack, and at some point put his phone on the kitchen counter. Now only in the most hyper-technical sense at this point is Garrett still alive, because he's clearly an extremist and he's not communicative. Emergency measures, as you might imagine, are taken to try to save his life and then Sadly, speculation begins to run rampant. Well, geez, his dad died of a brain aneurysm, maybe he did too. Or maybe maybe some kids were horsing around, or maybe something weird happened like that. And then, as the police continue further on into the apartment, they discover something strange. In what I'll call the storage room in the back, there is a window that clearly has been pushed out. And even that suggests to some that, well, maybe Garrett jumped out the window, hurt himself, and then came back in his apartment and died. All that, of course, is nonsense. So critical moments are wasted and precious scene work is not done. But eventually, this is treated as a crime scene. The apartment is sealed off. The police, they dust for fingerprints. And in the entire apartment, the only prints that are discovered that cannot be explained as either belonging to someone who resided in the apartment are unidentified prints found on the window frame that you're looking at right now, Judge. They're not the defendants, they're not Tandy's, they're not Aaron's, they're not Garrett's, they're not people that were checked, they're not in uh, the, the state safest system. We don't know how, they're, how long they're there but to, or to whom they belong. But when you see the prints, Judge, and when you, or excuse me, when you see where they were recovered, and you look at the condition of those blinds, it'll be pretty clear to you that they really have nothing to do with this particular case. And it's certainly not unusual for some prints to be found at a crime scene that are unidentified. I think just as significantly, if not more so, is that no prints are found on the deadbolt lock, which we know the killer touched. There's no foreign DNA found at the scene, other than under Garrett's fingernails, even though extensive search efforts were made, tests on his body, on his clothing, and on certain areas within the apartment. Then on Tuesday, October the 25th, in the afternoon comes the rather startling news to some from Dr. Michael Sikorica, a very experienced forensic pathologist, who performed the autopsy on Garrett. And the cause of death, Judge, is a combination of suffocation, and strangulation. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is. The manner of death is homicide. Someone has choked the life out of this little boy and when Dr. Sikoreka explains to you, it's not like on TV where somebody gets a choke hold and three seconds later they collapse and they die. This takes minutes. This takes minutes to choke the life out of somebody. The state police are involved in the Potsdam PD, for good reason, they, they've they never had a case like this. This isn't something that's normal for any community, never mind Potsdam, New York. So what do the police do, Judge? They they do, I think, what anybody looking at these facts would do. Why? Why was the kid killed? This is a, a, a uniquely personal form of homicide, this isn't a sniper, this isn't a person that's uh, in a bar fight and suddenly bangs someone over the head with a beer bottle. This is somebody that chokes the life with a high degree of hatred of a 12-year-old boy. So why? Well, what do we know for certain about whoever killed Garrett Phillips? We know that Garrett was very strong. You're going to know that Garrett was very strong. So the killer had to be strong. Garrett played all kinds of sports. And he only got to mutter a few sounds. He didn't scream out, who are you? He screamed out help. We know that the killer judge was athletic. If you look at this photo here, judge, this is an old building. And the killer jumped out of the building that's on the top left of this photo. That's about 18 feet to the ground undoubtedly buttressed by stopping on the way to that that shed there. This is somebody that is athletic. What else do we know? Well, we know the person didn't break into the apartment. No one jimmied the lock, no one broke the the door jam. And, and, And quite frankly, your honor, when you see the interior of the apartment, this is not a burglary. You could box up everything in apartment four, at 100 Market Street, and you couldn't fence it for a hundred bucks. This is not a burglary at five o'clock in the afternoon. There's no evidence that it's a sex offender. Garrett is fully clothed. There's no effort to disrobe him. The rape kit that was done on his body came back completely negative. And fifth, and lastly, Judge, this is not a chance encounter. You're going to know exactly where Garrett was from 4.30 to that 508 phone call by Marissa Vogel. And you're gonna see that the window to, this, to kill this kid is probably as narrow as five minutes. That's it. The person had to have been hunting this little boy. So I don't think it's unreasonable, I don't think you'll think it's unreasonable that the proof is gonna show the cops kept saying, why? Who killed the kid? Who had reason to kill this little guy? Was he involved in drugs? Zero evidence of that in the trial, Your Honor. Was he a bully? Not only was he not a bully, but the evidence is gonna show he's one of the most popular kids in school. He was handsome, friendly, he was mischievous, sports-oriented, teachers liked him, students liked him, girls liked him, his teammates liked him, his little brother loved him, his mother adored him. Casey Collins loved him, John Jones loved him. So who, was this tunnel vision? Was this the rush to judgment that the narrative suggests? Do we have to pin it on somebody? Nonsense. So on Monday night, cops do what they do. They began to interview family members. They talk to people at the hospital where Garrett was pronounced. People are grieving, people are upset beyond belief. They're going, what happened, why? They talked to neighbors. They should have been much more thorough in talking to neighbors, but they weren't. But that's a fact. But they still talked to some neighbors. And then they did this. They made a death notification to the defendant. Somebody involved in this kid's life. So they call him up, and it's one step in a constellation of events and facts that inexorably point to this guy's guilt. No one saw anyone jump from Garrett's window. No one had a conversation with someone who said, I killed Garrett Phillips. This is a case, Your Honor, of multiple facts and circumstances that point to the guilt of one person. So
2: they call him.
0: Monday, October twenty-fourth, two 2011. The time, 9.30. 7 p.m.
1: Police Farmer, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Are you? Not too bad. Uh, we had an incident uh, occur this evening, and we'd like to speak with you in, in regards to it. Um, there, was, uh, Tand- there was an incident with Tandy's uh, 10-year-old son, and I don't know if you'd be able to come to our station and speak to us really quick about it. Oh, sure. Okay. i definitely have my assistant uh, my bring me down. All right, thank you very much. get back to that in a moment, Judge, if it already hasn't jumped out at you. It really jumps out at you. He calls back within moments and says, geez, do you mind coming here? I don't want to leave my child home alone. I don't ascribe any nefarious motive to that. So they go, they go to his apartment, and they tell him that Garrett's dead, and the defendant, the testimony will show, he puts his head in his hands, and he reacts emotionally and he's sad but there's two, there's two huge things wrong with this narrative, this charade. Number one, he already knew something had happened because you're going to hear testimony from a buddy of his, Jeff James, who said he called him hours earlier. And listen to Jeff James's testimony because it's just as compelling as that phone call. Social media was lit up with news about Garrett's death. He texts Tandy at 8.55 before he hears from the cops and said, I just spoke to Jeff James, which is a lie, because he spoke to him an hour earlier. But number two, pay attention to that call you just heard, Judge. Listen to how the defendant reacted.
2: Tandy didn't
1: have a 10-year-old son, and he knew it. He lived with him for a year normal, basic, instinctual, two million years of human evolution reaction to something happen to Tandy's ten-year-old son is, oh my God, which one? Aaron? Was it Garrett? What happened to him? But not him, because he already knew. Judge, if curiosity killed the cat, this guy's going to live forever. He doesn't even say, what happened? And then they learn for the next, the next day, for certain, that Garrett's a homicide victim. And they ask him to come down to the Potsdam PD, and he does, and they get a court order. And they photograph the defendant pursuant to that court order. And defendant likes to, uh, likes to smoke, he's a chain smoker. He takes three cigarettes over the course of his time at the Potsdam PD perfectly normal human behavior, he takes the three cigarette butts and tries to jam them down the sink. And you have to really be intent on jamming these cigarettes down that sink. You're not getting my DNA. And the police also take some very telling photos of defendants very swollen and clearly injured right ankle. You'll see those photos, Judge, and more importantly, you'll hear medical evidence about the proof of those wounds and the defendant's numerous stories later on about how he inflicted those wounds. And on that Wednesday, the defendant is free to go. And the cops continue the investigation. The case goes cold. Not gonna apologize for anybody that says, we really wanted to solve this case. But at that point in this narrative, they've got one person with a motive one person who at one time possessed a key, and who knew Garrett, and who knew Market Street. One play person who playacted acted his reaction to Garrett's death. One person who defied common sense by not asking a single question about which son or what happened, and one person who had recently injured his ankle. But no arrest is made, the cops keep working the case, and then your honor, Something happens which I will affectionately refer to as the gift that keeps on giving. Oral Nick Hillary sues the Potsdam Police Department. Now, why he sued, I have no idea, I could care less. Every country, excuse me, every citizen in our great country can sue anybody for anything. It Takes a very special kind of person to sue under these circumstances, but he sued, and that sets into motion a chain of events. One is called a 58 hearing. You know what that is. And the other is called a deposition or an examination before trial. The 58 hearing is held on April 30th, 2012. Attorney Tom Mortaddy represented the the village of Potsdam. Mr. Hillary is there with his attorney. And then on January 20th, 2014, for six hours, the defendant was deposed on audio and videotape. Much of the stuff has to do with civil lawsuit stuff. It's not going I'm not going to bore you with that. But we're going to present to you about 90 minutes of that videotaped deposition, Your Honor. And I guess I'd say to a jury, you know, rely on your common sense. But it's a bonus because I'm talking to someone who makes his living judging credibility. When you look at that 90 minutes, Judge, inexorably, Is this person telling the truth, or is this person lying? You are going to be convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that that person, in that 90 minutes, is telling lies, frankly, too numerous to catalog. His favorite answer is, I cannot recall. If I took out I cannot recall from the 90 minutes, it'd probably be about six minutes. And watch him as he answers, I cannot recall, without even the slightest reflection or effort to try to recall. Now let's be honest, memories can affect, can be affected by the passage of time. You know, what did you have for dinner last Monday? I don't know, let me think. Well, why would I remember last Monday? You know, yesterday, if someone said, you know, where were you five years ago or three years ago, who would know? But if someone said to you yesterday, where were you 15 years ago? I can tell you exactly where I was. I was sitting on my desk. I can tell you who I was with. I can tell you what I was watching. I watched the, uh, live the second plane hit the north—excuse uh, me, the south trade—the uh, south tower of the trade center. That's the way the human mind works. So the defendant has every reason to recall October the 24th, even months later. And let me draw your attention to just a few things about the 90 minutes. Number one, defendant is utterly clueless as to why he and Tandy broke up. He doesn't even know who broke up with whom. It is a mystery to him like the Gordian knot. He has no idea why the two of them broke up. Number two, him and Garrett, they're best buds. They're like, uh, what's his name there, Oki and the other guy on the TV show. They're, they're palling around, thought the world of the kid. Both of those assertions, Judge, not marginally, not possibly. they demonstrably overwhelmingly false. You'll see text messages from Tandy where she lays out to him why they're breaking up. It's because of the kids, stupid. They don't like you. You'll hear family members who are subjected to the defendant's relentless whining about his, why doesn't Garrett like me? All of this evidence, and yet he says under oath, as cavalierly as the day is long, I don't know why the kid didn't, I don't know if the kid didn't like me. Never said he didn't like me. And here's a question, Judge, that's kind of important and pretty reasonable. That was asked over and over and over again during the deposition, where were you? 453 to 523, where were you, sir? Here's what he says, he's at his apartment, his daughter's down to the four tenths of a mile to Leroy, straight shot, she turns right, obviously, The defendants in one of these apartment buildings right here, it's only one road in, one road out, she gets home, again, he leaves, he comes down to the high school, he's scouting a game that's going on on this field, he gets up there for a while, I don't know if he moves, He wants to get a better view of the game. He moves to a different spot. He then leaves, goes back to his apartment. Don't know exactly what he does there for that period of time or why he went back, but he goes back, according to him. Stays there for a little while and then leaves. And that gives you a better idea, Judge, of exactly the straight shot that that I'm talking about. There can't be a more logical defense. And under New York law, the defense was required to serve a notice of alibi, which they did. What could be more? What could be a more probative defense when none is required under the proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard to say, I didn't do it because I couldn't have done it. I wasn't there. I was at my apartment with my daughter. I went to the school to scout a game. I went back to my apartment. And then I eventually wound up at my assistant coach's house to tell him about an important meeting with a member of the team, Jacob Duff, that was gonna take place that evening. And therefore, during this 30 minutes in Potsdam, I didn't do it. I'm a man falsely accused. Except, there's one enormous, gigantic, overwhelming problem for this defendant. Everything I just told you is 100% demonstrably, provably bogus. As bogus as a $3 bill, every word of it. Because by his own admission during his deposition, Mr. Hillary didn't know about the people's most important witness. That you're looking at right now, Your Honor. I've been in front of juries many times, in front of judges many times. I apologize. I say, I'm sorry, we had to make a deal with this guy. He was a paid informant. Uh, We're reducing his sentence. Uh, This person was a jilted lover and is now here to uh, exact his or her revenge. No, no apologies. That's the most important witness in this case, a neutral camera sitting on top of a school. And just like Hillary's deposition, again, Judge, there's a constellation of facts that independently don't prove his guilt, but the deposition proves his guilt, and this camera proves his guilt. Because let me show you what you will see during the course of this trial. To orient you, Your Honor, you're looking an aerial view of the school parking lot. There are one, two, and three are school cameras. They are pointed north. Number four, I'll call the concession stand camera. Just above the concession stand with that blue roof is the field that the defendant was supposedly scouting a game being played on. Five, six, and seven are cameras related to Canton Potsdam Hospital which are across the street. Let's examine, Your Honor, in the next couple of minutes, six critical areas that prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that this defendant killed Garrett Phillips. defendant says, unequivocally, numerous occasions, I came straight home. I came straight from my house to the school parking lot, which would necessitate that he turned right out of his apartment parkway and turned left coming into the school parking lot. But he didn't. He came from the south and he turned right, lie number one. Defendant states again with certitude that he's there to scout a game. Teams unknown watching a game that can't be seen. And he sits there, and he sits there, and he sits there. At one point he actually says, I can't remember if I saw Garrett Phillips, and then he gets back on point and says, no, no, I'm sure I didn't see him. Garrett at this point, your honor, is off to the right, playing basketball with a buddy. He's gonna be chased out momentarily. He got a phone call from his mom to get home. The school janitor, Dale Kingsley, is going to tell him he can't be there unsupervised, plan. So he has to leave. And he gets on his ripstick. I may call it, Your Honor, erroneously a, a skateboard. It's a, you won't see it because we no longer have it. But he gets on his ripstick and he leaves. And he will be coming in a westerly direction. From your right, and look at the defendant. The defendant is still sitting there, watching a game he can't see, and the area in front of him, Your Honor, is as flat as his courtroom floor. Suddenly, he
2: begins to move. Why? What's changed?
1: He moves so slowly that he almost comes to the stop. Meanwhile, Kayla Phillips has just left the concession stand and she's walking to the lower right hand quadrant of that exhibit. A car comes up behind the defendant and essentially almost makes him move. But why did the defendant move? He says to get a better view of the game. But now you're going to see why he moved. Because coming right at him, on his is Garrett Phillips.
2: So the defendant in his deposition says, well, I move to get a better view of the game. Well, if that was the worst spot to watch the game, he now moves to the
1: second worst spot to watch the game. Behind a series of 24 trees. Garrett stops and talks to his cousin in just a second, Oh, she's a couple of pieces of popcorn from her that she had just bought. She leaves him, and Garrett continues
2: on, on his wrist. <clears throat> the defendant never saw him.
1: guy on his way home. The defendant there scouting a the game from behind some trees. Lie number four, that he never saw. And then your honor, in what is the most conclusive piece of guilt against this man, At the exact instant Garrett reaches Leroy Street, the defendant backs up, Kate turns out of the parking lot, and according to him, at least a dozen times under oath, I went straight home back to my daughter. Straight home, four tenths of a mile directly north, only one way to get in or out. Except, the camera doesn't lie. Mr. Hillary doesn't turn right, he turns left. Because he's hunting Garrett Phillips. And he doesn't go down Cottage Street in the lower left-hand corner, because we don't see his car. But we do see Garrett continue to head down Cottage as he heads home to Market. popular, decent, 12-year-old boy, has about eight minutes to live. This is the view the defendant had, sitting in that parking lot for three minutes, and wants you to believe that just coincidentally, he moved exactly as Garrett was approaching him. He moved to get a better view, like that. How could you ask for a better view of a game than that, or that? I then left 118 Leroy. I headed south again to meet with my assistant coach. I stopped at his house on Garden Street. It was about 520, 521 according to the phone records. Did you text him, telling him you were coming? No. Did you call him? No. I stopped by unannounced, as rigid and as planned and as documented as I make my life, I stopped by unannounced to talk to Ian Farley about a meeting with Jacob Duff that was scheduled that night before practice. I want you to listen very carefully to this young man, Your Honor, Jacob Duff, wearing number nine. Again, not a circumstance that taken in isolation would convict him, but in every single other, added to every other single piece of proof in this case, one more circumstance that points inexorably to his guilt. Jacob is an individual that I think anybody would be proud of to call a son. Objection. He received...
2: Objection.
1: Well... I'll withdraw that. Jacob, you'll, you'll hear Jacob's testimony, Your Honor. You make your decision about him. He'll tell you that there wasn't a chance in the world that there was a meeting that night. Not a chance. First of all, you don't upset Coach Hillary. Jacob Duff no more miss a meeting with this defendant than quit in the game. And I want you to listen very carefully, Your Honor, to what happens to Jacob Duff after it dawns on him, hey, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be part of this alibi? I didn't have any meeting. I'm not playing that game. And you just listen very, very carefully to what happens to Jacob Duff. this defendant who is compulsively organized. Here are his two day planners. The lower left is from his office. The upper right is from his home. October 24th. No mention. No mention of any meeting with Jacob Duff. And we'll look at his phone timeline too, Your Honor. I'll have much more to say at trial about the defendant's phone records and his phone timeline. Defendant, in charit- charitably, would be called a, a phone junkie. He's on the phone all the time. He's texting. He's calling. He's taking pictures. Yet, astonishingly, one more, one more coincidence. From 3.11 to 5.28, defendant's phone is virtually silent. Not virtually, it's completely silent. We know that Garrett's alive at 4.52, we know he's skateboarding by. He's got a couple of minute skateboard or ripstick ride home. He has time enough to put his stuff away, take his backpack off. And at 5.08 p.m., he's already dead, and it took several minutes to kill him. So it comes down, as I said at the beginning, Your Honor, if you believe defendant was home from 453 to 523, with that exception of that brief foray to scout a a game of unknown teams, then he should be acquitted. But if he's lying, there's no third choice. You can't say, well, he lied through his teeth, but. No, there is no but. He lied because he killed Garrett. Garrett's last word on earth, we believe, was help. And the people will now help, Your Honor, determine who killed him. We consider circumstantial evidence all the time, Judge. We draw conclusions. It's just like any other human endeavor. Sometimes circumstantial evidence is garbage. If you remember the Kennedy assassination, there was a a, a guy that was in Dealey Plaza and he had an umbrella. He became known historically as the Umbrella Man. And for years, these conspiracy wackos were saying, that, oh, he, that was a signal. Circumstantial evidence, that was a signal for the shooters. turned out the guy was some guy that hated Kennedy's father and he was protesting. And that's the way they used to protest over in London when uh, Joseph Kennedy was there. Nothing to do with the case. Nothing to do with the conspiracy. Crap circumstantial evidence. The defendant doesn't have one or two umbrellas pointing to him. Every single fact in this case points to him. And at some point, Judge, with your God-given common sense and intelligence, coincidences stop being coincidences, and they start being proof of guilt. I would never want anyone to convict him because you felt sorry for Garrett or because you felt someone had to pay. Convict him because, as Arthur Conan Doyle said, whenever you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be true. Convict this defendant because of his obsession, his motive, his hatred of Garrett, his access to and knowledge of Market Street, his fresh ankle injury, his lies too numerous to catalog, and mostly because of the exhibit you just saw a few moments ago and your visceral reaction to seeing that video. Because he was hunting Garrett, the little boy who had the audacity to dislike the great Nick Hillary. The evidence, Your Honor, is beyond compelling. It approaches certainty. The many names that have been labeled on this defendant are the innocent man, the wrongfully accused, I want you to label him for exactly what he is. The murderer of a helpless 12 year old boy. Because he couldn't stand the fact that he caused the breakup with Tandy.
2: Thank you Mr. Fitzpatrick. In grief and there is sorrow. And with that pain and sorrow, there's naturally a cry for justice. A cry for someone to be held accountable, but it must be the right person. Nick Hillary is not the right person. Nick Hillary did not kill Garrett Phillips. He had no reason to kill this child. The so-called motive the prosecution has talked about makes no sense. Nick Hillary is not a murderer. He is not a violent man. Violence is inconsistent with who he is and what he has done in his life. Your Honor, you will hear that Mr. Hillary was a soccer coach for many years. That he coached and mentored young kids for many years. That he worked with and taught and trained young kids. He is the father of five children. You'll learn about Nick Hillary during this trial. The man, the father, the soccer player at St. Lawrence, and the soccer coach at Clarkson. Bob DeRocher, the St. Lawrence soccer coach for a quarter of a century, from 1990 to 2015, has known Nick for 20 years. He was Nick's coach when Nick played soccer at St. Lawrence, and Nick's boss when Nick was an assistant coach at St. Lawrence. Mr. DeRocha will tell you that Nick is a big family guy, and Nick is firm with kids, but fair. Mr. DeRocha will also tell you that Nick is a calm and composed guy, which made him a great team captain in 1999 when he led the St. Lawrence soccer team to win the NCAA Division III National Championship. Mr. DeRocha will tell you that Nick has a reputation for nonviolence. The Prosecution, as you know, has the burden of approving its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocent are the cornerstones of our criminal justice system. The prosecution just told you what they hope to prove, but what evidence do they have? Not one of the people who will walk through the doors of this courtroom and sit in that chair will say, I saw Nick Hillary kill Garrett Phillips. And why? Because it didn't happen. No one will come into this courtroom and say, I saw Nick Hillary sneak into the home of this child before he was killed. And why? Because it didn't happen. And no one, absolutely no one will come into this courtroom and say to you, Your Honor, I saw Nick Hillary run out of Garrett Phillips' home after he was killed. Why? Because it didn't happen. The prosecution has no eyewitnesses to this awful tragedy. There's no one who will credibly say, I saw Nick Hillary in the vicinity of 100 Market Street around 5 to 515, that Monday, October 24. The evidence will show that it was rush hour. There were plenty of cars on Market Street. But still, no driver, no homeowner, no pedestrian, no one can credibly say, I saw an African-American man entering or leaving 100 Market Street when this crime took place. This is true, Your Honor, even though the state police and the Potsdam police knocked on practically every single door and spoke to practically everyone in the neighborhood. No one can credibly say they saw an African-American male around that neighborhood. And Nick Hewory, he has and had a reason to be in that high school parking lot that afternoon. The prosecution wants you to jump to the conclusion that because Nick was in that parking lot, he killed Garrett Phillips. But the fact that Nick was in the parking lot does not not prove that he killed Garrett Phillips. There is no fingerprint evidence connecting Nick Hillary to this crime. There is no hair or fiber evidence connecting Nick Hillary to this crime. There is no video showing him approaching or going into 100 Market Street. No video showing him coming out of 100 Market Street. On October 24, 2011, the very day that Garifield was killed, the police zeroed in on Nick Hillary as the suspect. At about 9.44 that evening, Lieutenant Murray called Nick Hillary less than three hours after Garrett was declared dead and asked him to come into the police station. Well, the evidence will show that no one else, no one else was asked to come into the police station that night. And you will hear that the very next day, by 7.30 a.m. in the morning, when no evidence had been gathered, the police had strong feelings about one person. And later that morning, you hear when the chief of police said in a recorded phone call, quote, we have a strong suspect. On October 24, Nick Hillary was determined to be the suspect, a person of interest and from that point on his life, his life was placed under a microscope. From day one, the murder investigation focused almost exclusively on Nick Hillary. You will learn that after a thorough inspection of the deceased apartment at 100 Market Street, of the deceased clothes, of Mr. Hillary's clothes, his home, and his car. The police found no fingerprints, no hairs, or no fibers linking Nick Hillary to this crime. They searched Nick's home twice. They searched his office. They seized and searched his car. They seized and searched his phone. They seized and searched his clothes. They followed him. They looked through his phone records. They tracked down his military records for when he served this country in the United States Army. They obtained his employment history. They spoke to his neighbors, his friends, his co-workers, his teammates, his players. The evidence will show that the investigation into Nick Hillary was intense. Invasive and intrusive. On October 26th, that Wednesday, they had Nick go into the police station. They made him strip naked. Strip naked and took pictures of every single part of his body. He was the focus on day one. And they never, never relented. But the evidence will show When they searched his home, they found nothing. When they searched his office, they found nothing. When they searched his car, nothing. And the phone, nothing. You will also learn what the police actually found. They found fingerprints, but they were not nicks. The police also learned that other persons were at or in the immediate vicinity of 100 Market Street on that afternoon of October 24, 2011. You will learn about a Potsdam resident who around 3.30 to 4 saw a white man in his late teens with longish blonde hair wearing a gray hoodie in the driveway of his house next to 100 Market Street. And according to another Potsdam resident, The man in a hoodie walked up and down the driveway and then went behind the house towards Cottage Street. You also hear from a Potsdam resident who told police that her dog barked at a younger male with a dark hoodie and dark clothing who was walking towards Waverly Street at about 4.30 to 4.45 that afternoon. There is no evidence that the police tried to follow up on these reports. The prosecutor has and will draw your attention to statements Nick Hillary made at a deposition in a lawsuit he brought, brought because of the way he was treated that October 26th by the police. The statements he made at that deposition were made 27 months, more than two years, more than two years after the death of Garrett Phillips. It is true. He often said, I can't recall, but does that make him a murderer? Much of the evidence in this case concerns what happened during a critical 65 minutes on the afternoon of October 24, 430 to 535. Nick's daughter, Shauna Kay got home from her soccer practice around 4.30. When she arrived, Nick was home. He and Shauna Kay talked for a short time and Nick went to the Potsdam High School to watch the varsity soccer game. Just as that morning, he told Ian Fairley, his assistant coach, he was going to do. Video will show Nick Hillary's car entering Potsdam High School parking lot at 447 and leaving at 453. The prosecution, as you've already heard, wants you to make much of this video. The video will show Nick's car exiting the parking lot shortly after the deceased and turning left onto Leroy Street in the same direction as the deceased. This is all the video will show you. But the prosecution wants you to jump to conclusions. Evidence will show unsubstantiated conclusions from this video. The prosecution will also emphasize, but by turning left, Nick went in the opposite direction from his home. This is true. But what is also true, and what the evidence will show, is that even though he turned left, Nick went home. You will hear Shauna K. Hillary testify that when she got out of the shower and checked her home, it was 5 p.m., and her father was in the apartment. You will see video of Garrett Phillips on Cottage Street After leaving the high school, you will not, you will not see video of Nick or Nick's car on Cottage Street. And why? Because he wasn't there. Your Honor, you can't be in two places at the same time. You can't be in two places at the same time. And Nick Hillary went home. You will not see or hear any Credible evidence of Nick or Nick's car approaching, at or leaving 100 Market Street during the critical time when Nick exits the parking lot until Officer Mark Wentworth found the deceased. And why? Because he wasn't there. You can't be in two places at the same time. And Shauna Kay will tell you Nick Hillary was at home from 5 until about 515 when he left his home for Clarkson University. And what about after 515? Nick Hillary stopped at Ian Fairley's house on his way to Clarkson to tell Ian about a meeting scheduled with Jacob Duff, a player on the Clarkson soccer team. Ian will tell you that he was on the phone when Nick arrived at his house, and Ian's phone records will show that the call started at 5.20 p.m. and lasted two minutes and 15 seconds. Nick got to his house at about 5.21 p.m., spoke briefly with Ian, and then left for Clarkson around 5.23. Ian left almost immediately after Nick, following him to Clarkson. Jacob Duff will say there was no scheduled meeting. But he will also say that when he spoke to Nick that afternoon, the phone call was dropped. And phone records will show that Nick Hillary called Jacob Duff back, that the call went to voicemail and lasted 29 seconds, and that Duff did not check his voicemail until October 26th. You will hear evidence from Officer Mark Wentworth. He will tell you that he was dispatched to 100 Market Street at about 5.10 p.m. in response to a call from Marissa Vogel, one of the residents of apartment 3A at 100 Market Street, you will learn that Officer Wentworth arrived at 100 Market Street at about 5:15. Then he knocked on the door of apartment 4A, Tandy Cyrus's apartment, but there was no answer. It was after 5:15 when Officer Wentworth heard. Not that he thinks he heard, but that he heard what sounded like someone start to walk around in the apartment. At about 522, Officer Wentworth then told his dispatcher to get in touch with the manager, Richard Dumas. You will learn that shortly after 522 p.m., while waiting for Mr. Dumas, Officer Wentworth heard, heard for a second time, what sounded like movement in the apartment. Wentworth then went downstairs and knocked on the door of the apartment below 4A. The residents had not heard anything unusual. Wentworth returned to apartment 4A and knocked again. He again heard what sounded like movement inside the apartment. It was now some minutes after 522. Once Mr. Dumas arrived with the key to apartment 4A, Officer Wentworth and Mr. Dumas entered apartment 4A and at about 535 found the deceased unconscious on the bedroom floor. Your Honor, I remind you again, you can't be in two places at the same time. Remember Officer Wentworth said he heard footsteps shortly after he arrived around 5.15. Remember also that Nick Hillary was at home from 5 p.m. until about 5.15. Remember that Officer Wentworth said he twice heard movement in Apartment 4A after 522 p.m. Remember also that Nick Hillary was at Ian Farley's home at 521 p.m. You also hear about Hershey, the police dog, who picked up a scent of a person in Apartment 4A at 100 Market Street that evening. You'll learn that Hershey followed a trail leading west to the railroad tracks, a direction that is inconsistent, inconsistent with any path toward Ian Farley's house. Nevertheless, the police continued to pursue Nick Hillary. The prosecution Your honor, will try to make much of various events that occurred later that evening. They will say that soccer practice was unusually short that night. This is true. It is also true that there was a heavy rain that night and that the team had a game the next day and a pregame practice is usually shorter than most practices. They will point to a call from Jeff James to Nick that evening. Jeff James did call Nick, but he was vague, not specifying which of Tandy's sons was concerned. He did not, did not tell Nick that Garrett Phillips was dead. And Ian Fairley will tell you that after that call, Nick was anxious because he knew something had happened, but didn't know what. You will learn that after Jeff James' call, Nick and Ian left Clarkson and then met up again at Nick's apartment, prepare for the next day's soccer game against Potsdam. Once home, Nick texted Tandy Cyrus, saying, I heard something is wrong. Could you please contact me? She did not. At about 9.44 p.m., Lieutenant Murray called and asked Nick if he could come to the police station. Nick said sure, you heard that on the recording a little while ago. Then realizing his daughter was asleep, he called back and asked if Lieutenant Murray could come to his apartment to talk. At about 9.55, Lieutenant Murray and two other law enforcement officers visited Nick and told him of Garrett Phillips' death. One point here, when it's described as the notification call, it wasn't just notification. They asked him where he was earlier. When Nick heard about Garrett Phillips' death, his reaction, was with his hands on his head, oh my God, I feel so empty inside. The police stayed for about five minutes and then left. Nick left phone messages with Tandy Cyrus's parents. Nick also called and spoke to Patricia Phillips, Garrett's grandmother. Ian left Nick's apartment at about 1127. The evidence, Your Honor, will also show that Nick Hillary was not, was not obsessed about the breakup contrary to the prosecution's claim. Your Honor, the evidence will show that the Potsdam and New York State Police focused on Nick Hillary within hours of the murder and remain focused on Nick Hillary despite the lack of credible evidence connecting him to the crime. The prosecution will not prove its case. At the conclusion of this murder trial, the defense will request, Your Honor, that you find Nick Hillary not guilty. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Siegel. And let's take a break uh, before we hear from